Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, it's Emily, and welcome to a special edition of Sliced, a Sliced Snippet. This episode was recorded in Arizona at the Unmet AZ Conference back in early October, and will be a short but inspiring look into impactful founders and notable people from the region. On today's Slice Snippet, we sit down with Christy Kerner, founder and CEO of My Little Mascara Club. Christy attended the conference and showcased her company, a monthly subscription box for makeup wearers to get fresh mascara delivered right to your door. Please enjoy my conversation with Christy. Hi, Christy. How are you? Hey, I'm well. Thank you. We are so excited to have you here. So fun, especially as two girls ourselves to talk about beauty and makeup. Right. So very exciting. I, I hear you. This has actually been one of the funner companies that I've built. I know that. And we are about to get right into how this all happened. So kind of walk us through it. Are you originally from Arizona? Nope. Mm -mm. I have um, kind of spent my life split across several states on the west side of the U.S. But Arizona, I've been in for maybe about 15 years now. So I've been here a minute. And it looks like you received your master's from Western Governors University. I did. Where is that? That's in Salt Lake. Okay. Yeah. So, and fun fact, I mean, I only had a ninth grade education up until a couple of years ago when I got both a bachelor's and a master's in my 40s. So... That is awesome. Kind of fun. Congratulations. Thank you. That's great. So you went to school kind of with the intent of going into leadership in HR, is that right? Um, Recently, yeah, on the master's. I I really love the study of human behavior and psychology, and I really, really love business. And so to me, leadership is where those two things intersect, how we can inspire and corral humans to Mm -hmm. go in a direction together and create something big in this world. And so that was what I wanted to lean into a little bit more if I was going to go back into studying something at this phase. That's so cool. So you mentioned that My Little Mascara Club is not your first venture. So walk me through when did you realize you were an entrepreneur, kind of your first experiences with that? Yeah. So, you know, um, I don't think I ever realized I might be anything other than an entrepreneur. So I think so a born entrepreneur. Yeah, it it can run in your blood, I'm guessing. I I found my my mom's mom was a multi-time business owner um, here in Phoenix over her life. And then my parents, get this, they were the macrame king and queen of the 70s. Okay. I mean, hey, talk about a cool claim to fame, right? So uh, during those years, they basically had an exclusive contract on all the cord coming into the U.S., and they also produced all of the kind of booklets of how to create beautiful macrames. And so um, they published all of those. So we, I got to see them go through actually both the good side and the bad side of company building mm-hmm. because macrame, in case you're not aware, turned out to be a trend that died very quickly. And so our family was on a very big upswing, and then one day the bottom just fell out from under everything and that our family had to ride that wave. And so I think that actually 
helped me in a way because I was still pretty young at that point, but it taught me that it's worth taking chances and that when you work hard and create something new and innovative and different that people love, you can be well rewarded for that. But you can also lose everything. <laughs> Entrepreneurship is a roller coaster. But if you do, you'll still survive. We're all still alive. We all moved forward. Like there's, um, it takes away some of the fear of failing, I guess you could say, right? So right. I, I had that example as a young person. Um, so really, I started my career in, in the mid-90s helping build companies for myself and other people and have spent most of my career doing that. That is so neat. It looks like you founded K. A-A-S-C Jewelry. <laughs> so, yeah. What I, does that stand for? Oh, it was, okay, so you get better at company building as you go. That's fine. There's, this is a judgment-free zone, totally no, judgment-free. I'm judging. <laughs> I'm sorry, but no, it was called Cassie Jewelry, um, and it was the initials of several people that were very important oh, to gotcha. me. Oh, um, gotcha. I wouldn't use a brand like that today, but, um, but yeah, it was, I had a, um, basically, a, a thesis around, how to create diamond jewelry that used pink diamonds, white diamonds, and rose gold and white gold in combinations that were cost efficient and really, really pretty. And so I learned how to design and manufacture diamond jewelry. I started selling it, and that was in 2007 when one of those many <laughs> terrible years uh, hit all of us. And I was like, okay, breaking into the luxury market at a moment like this is probably not my best idea. Not the so best timing. I went ahead and fortunately all of my inventory was like diamonds, so I didn't <laughs> lose too much on that company. But right. I, um, I decided not to continue to pursue that particular company. Understood. And then, weirdly enough, I got recruited by Boeing as an industrial engineer. Yeah, so I have that here, which we were going to discuss. So yeah, walk us through the diamonds to Boeing transition. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> yeah, it was funny. I mean, before that, the companies that I had built were um, local businesses, like dental practice, massage therapy clinic, things like this, right? And um, in, in the environment that I was in in those earliest years... Um, the people that I, I was kind of a founding operator, like these dentists wanted to show up, work on teeth and then go golfing. They didn't want to have to do anything more and dropped me in as the person to build, to handle the business side, right? Gotcha. Um, so, but there was an X factor. They were afraid of computers. And so I didn't get to use a computer for anything. And in the first couple of years, this business scaled up to be doing like three, four million a year, right? And to be able to track all of that on paper, I just got really good at efficiency because oh it was my goodness. survival. Like How if many, I, like, oh my goodness, files and yeah, color coordinate. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> and I'm a slight perfectionist, so it was crazy. Um, even just doing payroll was me with a, a hand calculator, right, for 10 hours straight, looking through tax books, pulling the deduction amount for every single, it was, it was crazy. Oh my gosh. But what that did is it created within my head at a time when I should have been, I don't know, studying geography in school. So like, let's never talk geography. Um, it created a strong ability for me to intricately understand all aspects of a company and how they fit together and how I can create, keep data or processes on a critical path, right? So it was the fact that I am such an efficiency nut. And that paired with the fact that at a biotech company in LA that I spent some time at, I was able to help them implement some business intelligence software that connected the tech team to the business need. And so all of that added up to Boeing recruiting me over to help them with some similar things because it turns out industrial engineering is efficiency in a manufacturing environment. So that worked out well for me. And then um, it also 
was about helping them implement some business intelligence stuff. So That's so neat. And how long were you at Boeing for? Not very long because I accidentally started a company at the same time that I... How do you accidentally... <laughs> only it's an entrepreneur would say that. that it's, it happens. How do you... So what did you accidentally start? Well, so um, alongside all of this kind of activity in my career, I had gone through a lot of different things as a human. One of them being that I spent 12 years in an like, end-of-the-world survivalist cult in North Idaho, cut off from the rest of the world, like a really intense situation. <laughs> and toward the tail end of that, found out I had a brain tumor that was not cancerous, but still really pesky. And so I had been going through a lot of things on the personal side throughout a lot of these years. And um, what I found was that I... Th through um, the tumor in my head sabotages my metabolism because it's on my pituitary. So I had kind of, one of the first things that I had done to step out of the cult back into the big scary world was to take a tap dancing class because I wanted to find a way to stay active that I would be cheerfully entertained by because I realized that my body was sabotaging me when it came to my metabolism and I was really frustrated by that. And so that snowballed into, as I bridged away from this group that I used to belong to, I fell into a community of dance. And that was something that meant a ton to me because it was my first space to really meet people and to find out that the world wasn't this terrible place that I had been raised to believe. Um, but it also was just something that is a really freaking fun way to stay active. Yeah. And so um, as, I, as my career progressed and when I moved over here for the job at Boeing and um, was living in Arizona, I just... I basically by then had studied and taught dozens of styles of dance, um, started learning as an adult, so it's not like I'm crazy good at any of them, but I am a really good methodical teacher and I do study dance and I have some coordination so I can do some interesting things. So I kind of put together this curriculum where I could teach all my friends to dance. And That's so cool. started hosting little events at my house where I would teach women how to like feel better about themselves in life by moving in ways that were inherently feminine and beautiful. And, and I found that it really created a transformation from the inside out. Dance is like weirdly close to people's heart, you know? And um, so helping a person feel confident through dance changes a lot about how they feel about themselves, like in a weirdly powerful way. Um, so ultimately, that's that really took off. And I ended up with uh, 6,000 square feet in Tempe that the news would call a playground for women. It was just dozens of crazy cool classes, fun ways for women to stay active, and created over the years a tribal following and a group, a strong community around this, this effort, and ultimately created a curriculum that was licensed and taught at other studios throughout the U.S. and Canada, and um, had multiple locations and whatnot, so it was a really, that is so, really fun company. My mouth is open, company. I was just listening, that's so... I was enthralled. <laughs> yeah. So are you, are, is that still operating now? Well, I sold it six years ago. Okay. So yeah, I haven't been involved for the last six years, okay. but yeah, it's But do the classes still, okay. It's really fun to see. My voice still plays in the guided meditations in class. Oh my gosh. I probably did one like on YouTube during the quarantine. <laughs> so much <laughs> right? like at home workout. I probably heard one. <laughs> yeah. That's so cool. But it was in, I think 2013. So while I still owned that company that I first encountered growth companies because if you are a company builder, it's not often, some people, more, I guess more now, people encounter kind of the startup mindset from the beginning. But if you're a company builder of a more traditional sort, like you just go build 
a company, like you open a restaurant or you do, you know, main street type businesses. Um, and those chase profitability really quickly and have very, very tight margins to grow off of. So the growth curve is pretty slow. Um, that's, I built a number of those companies. I have built them for myself, for other people, multi-million dollar, like all of that stuff. But when I first learned about what it means to build a startup, and how that works and what it means to be able to be venture-backed and <clears throat> get into the world more quickly with your mission and with more impact and scale, then I was really, really intrigued. And so I started really diving into studying the differences of how different styles of company building and how to make decisions in each scenario. Um, and that led me to the opportunity to run the Center for Entrepreneurship at ASU, which was really cool because there I also got to dive in even more to what does it mean to build a company? What types of companies do we want to build? When do you do one versus the other? And how do you do one versus the other? And how can we make this clearer for people so that they don't just go running down a path thinking that they're going to you know, build, I don't know, a cupcake company for their local market and that they need a venture capital investor and a co-founder from day one, right? Like right. those things don't go together, but there are other things that do go together and we can help them discern what's going on in this big pocket of chaos called entrepreneurship. And so, so that was a really fun phase too. And that led to many other things in which I've um, been more of like a mentor and an advisor, helping a lot of founders here in Phoenix work together to grow their company and have the connections that they need and things like that. So neat. So you were mentioning with ASU kind of diving into different types of companies. Mm -hmm. I'm curious because we can transition to My Little Mascara Club. Is this where you had the idea for something subscription-based? Was this kind of what for led sure. you to that? Yeah, definitely. Okay, that type of model? Yeah, exactly. Okay. I mean, I I, for the last five years, there's a group here in town called the Startup AZ Foundation that's committed to helping founders just understand the bigger options out there, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have a repeatable, scalable model to your company, then let's talk about not just building a million-dollar company, because that's the big stars in our eyes that we get when we don't know any different. But what if it was a $10 million company or a $100 million company? What impact could you create in this world? What kind of a team could you bring into a culture and create jobs that they love? And what kind of impact could you create for your own family through something like that, mm -hmm. right? So we help them understand how this all works. So I've stood shoulder to shoulder for the last five years with 60 different founders here in town, mostly subscription software company founders, as they've gone through this journey. Um, and so I've had a first-class education is what I feel like, right? So in, in the back of my head, well, first of all, I was actually pretty comfortable just, if I felt like as a grandparent, it was kind of like I could hang out with the founders on a regular basis and sugar up the whole situation, and then I go home and sleep really well, and they stay up with their crazy, chaotic kid all night, right? Um, so I wasn't in, like aching to start another company per se. But I knew that if I did, it would need to have that repeatable, scalable core to it. Because to me, that's that's the only type of company that I would be interested to start right now. So one day, I guess it was a few years ago when I was, you know, mascara. If you're a mascara wearer, you totally understand this. That I mean, I'm not going anywhere without my mascara. I, I joke, but it's literally true. My phone won't unlock if I'm not wearing my mascara. No. Because it's like, who's this? <laughs> Definitely not Christy Kerner. Like, get her out of here, right? So it's deeply connected to my sense of self. And it's something that, that's the kind of product that, A, intrigues me from a market perspective. Um, 
but more than that, I realized, oh, wait a second, what, what's happening here? I mean, mascara, it's one job is to hang out on our lashes all day. And it's notorious for not really doing that. So first of all, I was questioning that. Second, I was like, it's full of toxic ingredients. And we all just accept that because we just kind of go, well, at least it's not on my skin. So hopefully this will work out. I mean, it's just, there's this nagging thing with that, that again, I started to question. There's also this frustrating replenishment friction in the fact that mascara being a wax-based product, it just, you wake up one day, you open it and it's bad. Like mm -hmm. you don't know when that day is going to hit, but it's going to hit and you're going to try and use it. It's going to be clumpy and dried out and nasty and gross. And you're going to have to throw away half the bottle because it just got dried out. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's frustrating because you know, you don't think about it again until six o'clock the next morning when you're getting ready. And this goes on four or five days in a row until you finally go, fine, I'm stopping at CVS, right? Like I have to get it now. I'm not going to wait till I get to go to the Target or something like that. So as I started looking into the data, I found that um, mascara is a top selling skew out of everything they sell at CVS because of this problem. And I was like, okay, I'm not the only one that like that has this chaos in their this. life. Um, I also had a strong hypothesis about a shorter, smaller bottle of mascara being the size that mascara should be. Not only is it easier to hold, you have better hand-eye coordination, you can get better angles, but it actually freaking right sizes it. You don't you can use all of the mascara before it dries out and goes bad and you throw half of it away. So seeing all of these opportunities to and validating with other people to see if this product could be improved was really interesting to me. And then, of course, with it coming down to the smaller size and, you know, there being a health factor, it is the number one cosmetic that the FDA gets involved in and says, this one you should replace way faster than every other cosmetic that you have because it's right by your eyes. It's a wet substance like there's a lot that could go so wrong true. here. And so um, so it all added up to me to be something that was worth looking into. And then the, as I started looking into more of the market size and the data, I mean, a single product with a $10.3 billion market, over 100 million women in the U.S. alone that wear mascara on a daily basis, like it's it's a market bigger than razors. And we've all seen what Dollar Shave Club did in changing the way that people buy razors and like five other companies that have come along and become right. giant companies and all the incumbents are still out there doing their thing. Right. So imagine that same possibility, but in a much larger market with a product that women won't go a day without. Right. That's, it was just a very interesting, like, you know, situation. And so, so yeah, I basically just decided to start a company and here we are. So that is so <laughs> cool. So how long, ago was that you said? Um, I had ago? the idea almost three years ago, but it's really hard to make a mascara. And so it took I was going to say, yeah. So were you like in the labs and, and yeah. wow. So it took a couple of years. Um, and networking is something that I love doing and that anything I love, I end up good at, fortunately. Um, so I networked my way into the cosmetics industry and started working with cosmetic scientists to see what we could do about this and to see if we could kind of reinvent mascara in a way that didn't have all the traditional problems, right? Um, that would stay on your lashes, but would still be easy to remove because you don't wanna, like, sure there's waterproof, but that's gonna destroy your lashes. Um, and we did it. It took a long time um, and uh, over a hundred <laughs> tries, I guess you would say, but we did. We created an excellent product that even now, like the global cosmetics industry report that went out this summer in talking about how 
various cosmetics have moved forward with their formulations to be clean, they picked us as the mascara that has set the bar for the entire industry in how well we've done to clean up mascara while still having it be a product that works really well, right? Right. Um, so we're starting to get some really cool industry recognition from all of that. But we did launch publicly um, during 2020, which I used to, I used to say I was excited to have the number one product that most women won't leave the house without. And then a pandemic happened. And I was like, okay, did not foresee a world in which women stopped leaving the house. Great. <laughs> so it was a little bit of a rocky start for sure to launch a makeup company. And the one time in history where women were just like, peace out. I'm not wearing any makeup for a while, you know. Um, but it's okay. We worked it out. And this year we were we were able to collect a lot of data and really start to get like our, our footing under us in the market sure. in 2020. And then this year, as we've started to get some capital in, we've really started to grow and and it's been really fun. I mean, we've been starting to implement the deeper and deeper levels of our strategy, which for me, a consumer product brand, it wins, if you will, or, or finds success and depth through um, the brand experience, which is hard for a lot of investors of the software type to really mm -hmm. understand because it feels like an invisible squidgy thing somewhere, right? Um, but what that means is that it's about creating community and, and creating loyalty and creating connection with your customer. And so we do a ton of stuff to surprise and delight, to uplift our customers. And again, with what I described, with my background, I am really, really passionate about helping women feel better about themselves in life. That's our mission. It's actually the same mission I've had with all three of the companies we've discussed. Um, and I have a lot of skills to be able to do that. I've studied emotional intelligence with a lot of depth in order to get myself out of the chaos that I was dropped into as, as a young one, right? And so um, through all of our content, I love the fact that mascara helps women have confidence from the outside because it opens up the conversation through all of our content, through all of our community initiatives to also help them learn how to create true confidence from the inside out and to be happier people and to create more peace between their ears. And that's honestly the mission that I'm really excited about. Our 2025 goal is to have mascara being delivered to a million women every month. And if we do that, I can't even tell you how delightful that'll be. We'll have a million women that every, you know, one of the things that they do in our community is we send them a new mantra every morning that they say while they apply their mascara to try and start the day off on the right foot with a little self-love and focus on something That's good. That's so nice. You know? Do you have a mantra for us today? That's, uh, I know it's putting you on the spot. Oh, you know what? Well, we have one that we put in the packages last month, and it says, life is tough, but I am tougher. Nice. I like so, that. That's pretty true. simple. That's true. Well, that is so, so interesting. And I am curious, especially being a female founder and having done this a few times, what have your experiences fundraising been like? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, uh, it's interesting because I would say that to try and define it in a way that is answering your question, um, I have, I have never felt held back as a female in business when I show up and be a human in business. So um, yeah, of course, in a couple of situations, I've had some guys that tried to like hold me back or whatever, and I just got myself out of those situations because I don't have time for that crap. I'm too excited to go do fun, good things, right? <laughs> and there's a ton of men out there that are so supportive of things. But the challenges that I have had are around the fact that my product doesn't connect emotionally with men. And so 
it's it's harder for them to get excited about my product initially. Um, so that is, you know, a male-female dynamic that has been a challenging factor for me. So I, I do focus a lot on the numbers and the business case and relating mm-hmm. it to razors and the loyalty, trying to help them wrap their head around how much they love their brand of deodorant, I guess, is what, how do I, you know, right. to help them understand what this experience is like for the mascara buyer. Um, so that's one piece that I have definitely noticed. If I... If there were more women in venture capital, it certainly would open the opportunity for me to connect deeper mm-hmm. with with mm-hmm. people as I'm discussing it. The other side of it, though, that's probably the more challenging, again, I don't feel like it's because I'm a woman at all, but it does put me in a minority situation, is that most traditional capital is aligned with software. Because software is tr- typically the thing that is the most repeatable, scalable, right? Um, and in consumer products, I would argue there are a very small amount of them that truly make sense to be on subscription. Now, we all know there are subscription boxes. I'm not talking about those. Those are a curation play, right? I'm talking about replenishment. And so deodorant has done it. Toothpaste has done it. Or toothbrushes, I want to say. Um, razors have done it coffee tries to do it, you know, there's very few things that we as consumers get in a perfect groove of loyalty with one thing and need it every day, right? But I would absolutely argue mascara is one of them. But because there are so few, there's very limited times that an investor encounters a company like mine that really truly makes sense to invest in. So that just means there's not a lot of familiarity with people investing in my type of company. So where they get tripped up is they look at it and they go, well, I just, I don't know how to like advise and support and help and connect a company like yours. So I don't know if we should be your capital partner, right? So I definitely experience a lot of what would be kind of the effects of being a minority or a niche type of company. Um, So it's, it's means that I have to, you know, if, they say you have to talk to 100 people to t- get to 10 that are relevant and potentially investing, right? For me, I talk to 100, I get 1.2 people that are relevant, you know? So <laughs> right. it definitely creates a lot more uh, work for me. But honestly, I love the work of fundraising because I love meeting new people and jamming out and talking about this business that I'm crazy passionate about and mm-hmm. hearing their perspective and learning more and moving forward. So Sure. Do you have any mentors okay. in the space? I do. Yeah, that have been able to help you along. Oh, for sure. Yeah, Yeah, I would say on the fundraising side, oh my gosh, I've, the community here in Phoenix amongst founders is so incredible. I mean, I was even able to go to like when I very first started my fundraising journey, a little over a year ago, I sat down with my friend Jamie Baxter, who has done so much to give back here and help teach people on fundraising. Um, He's a founder of a very successful startup here in town. And I went to him and I was like, Jamie, don't repeat this. Here I am going to say it live and fun, <laughs> whatever. But I was like, I am realizing that I am scared to ask people for money. And I know I need to get beyond that. And so help me shift my headspace, right? And he was like, okay, that's an easy one. He's like, you are giving people the opportunity to buy part of your company. And you're going to go kick ass with this company and create something that rewards them in return. And he's like, there are only a handful of people that actually end up attaching to each company as it grows. And they're going to be your village. He's like, so you get to go and find who's going to be your village and your cheerleaders and a part of your little family that gets to someday look back and go, wow, we did it, you guys, right? And so that's the conversation that you're having with people are, is 
are you going to be on my team with me? You know, and if so, this is the cost to do that. You know, it was just he reframed the whole that. thing yeah, for kind me. Of, kind of took the fear out of it. Yeah, it mm-hmm. was just I'm not asking people for money. I'm you know providing an opportunity, and we're exploring if it's a match and a fit between us, right? And so, so yeah, I've had amazing mentors, and um, I have a great bench of advisors that are formally a part of things that fit every core, every little piece. I have a gal that was um, in a leadership role at the world's largest cosmetic company through her entire career who keeps me on the straight and narrow thinking about a makeup company because my background is very like software. <laughs> I was going to actually, I was not going to ask this, but that prompted me. So you mentioned you accidentally started a company. Like, yeah. Do you today still have little ideas that pop in? No, I try not to. Man. Okay, okay. No. So you're you're on the straight and sure. You're locked in. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I really think that you know. And I'll, in all honesty, again, I just I didn't know if I ever needed to start another company. And I don't believe that we should try and force ourselves to, because, like, the idea just has to like hit you. And if you try and force it, it's just really hard to have the gumption to see it through if it's something that, that innate you're just passion yeah right you can't absolutely. manufacture that necessarily exactly right yeah. but when you see a problem and it just looks like a golden path like I just saw it I was like mascara on subscription a small mascara cleaned up done better surrounded with this warm mission to help women feel better about themselves in life I literally in my head I see a yellow brick road just to walk down nice and simple right it's not anywhere close to simple. Like it's so hard to build a company, but in my head, I have a very clear vision and it's very easy to see. And I am very passionate about it because of what I care about as a human being. And Mm so love it. Still at it. Love it. And that kind of brings me to my next point, which is, is there one piece of advice you would give somebody maybe just starting out in their journey or maybe something you wish you knew when you got started? Hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, I will, I'll say, um, I used to talk about this a lot with the students at ASU because I think it's a hidden part of entrepreneurship that needs to be spoken about. And what it is, is it's the number one in my anecdotal research study here, just me watching things. (laughs) Um, There's one trait that I see as the trait across all successful entrepreneurs. And When I ask people what they think it's going to be, I often hear like tenacity, grit, passion, resilience, all that kind of stuff. And all those are really true. But there's a weird side to that where like when you pick something that it hits you and you're going to build a company, you just become obsessed with it. So all of that part is almost automatic (laughs) because you're weirdly, unhealthily obsessed with it. Right. Obviously, you have to have grit or you wouldn't be in this position. Um, But the piece of it that I think is, is the hidden piece is that to me... It's resourcefulness. So the number one skill I think that we need to consciously have is resourcefulness. And again, I hope it's okay if I swear, just the ability to figure shit out. Um, And I think that people don't realize that because they look at someone that has built companies before and assume that that person just knows how to do all the things. But here's the thing is when you're innovating, you're walking down a path that no one's walked down every time. So there's no manual on that every time. So... Yeah, sure. There's some parts of it. Like I know how to read a Facebook report. I know how to, you know, there's pieces of it that you learn and that you know, but there's so much ability to learn things out there now that the job of a founder, especially through those early stages is just to step 
forward, step forward, step forward, and constantly figure things out. There's a, a movie called Joy, and in this movie, it's about this gal that was... Um, she was an inventor, right? And it's a true story. You'll have to watch it. Oh, wait, yeah. Is this the one with Jennifer Lawrence? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. I haven't seen it, but I, I actually heard very good things. Yeah. Sorry, go on. No, so there's <laughs> there's a scene in it where she's standing at the foot of her bed because she had a really disadvantage, disadvantage growing up. And she finally, as a young adult, is starting to figure out that she's an inventor and that she can get these things out into market. And it's going to freaking change her life financially and significant way for her and her little one. And so she goes to her mom and she's like, mom, you remember when I invented that dog collar when I was young? How come you didn't just help me patent that? Like that could have changed our entire family's last 15 years, you know? And her mom just with a flat face looked at her and was like, I don't know how to file a patent. And that was that, right? And it was the epitome to me of like, as a founder, we just have to stare down this feeling of, I don't know how to do that all day every day, but we can't stop the conversation there. We have to go, so I guess I'm going to go figure that out. Like, <laughs> right. And so that's, if you know that there's two things, one is that you become really empowered because you know that it doesn't matter what you don't know. You can go figure it out. You can study it. You can research it. You can ask people like you can get anywhere if you are committed to figuring something out. But then it also brings a level of comfort to people that all that time that in your head, you feel like an imposter or like the only one that doesn't know or that you feel some kind of insecurity because you don't know how something works or what to do next, just know that that's actually your job description as an entrepreneur. That's your state of mind. That's how you live. That's how you start every morning. <laughs> right. So and not so allowing that it's to not shake a bad you. Thing. Exactly. It's, it is just the job, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, so to me, that's the piece that I, I really like to try and raise awareness of because I think that it can give us a lot more comfort to know that if we don't know what we're doing, that's okay. Our job is to always figure it out um, and that everything is figure outable. So I love that. I think that's applicable to people who even aren't entrepreneurs. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Is there anything else you would like to add about your journey, your background? I feel like there's no way we touch on everything. You've done so much. But if I missed anything important or anything else you'd like to add? No, I actually don't think so. Okay. Thank you. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Christy. It was so great to, to meet you and to have you here. And I loved hearing about your journey. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Sliced Podcast. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode of Sliced, please email newsroom at startupblogpost.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.